Hello, my name is Will Witherington. I'm a staff person for, with Campus Arch Lexington, and I'm also one of the assistant pastors at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church here in Lexington, Kentucky. This seminar that we're going to be talking about uh, here for, with me is on relationships, particularly dating relationships, with the idea that those relationships would uh, become marriages one day. As I think about dating and relationships in this seminar, I'm mindful that some of you listening to this may not ever get married. And if that's God's call on your life, then that's a good thing for you and for the world. I'm also mindful that God may take many of you through a long season of singleness before you do get married. Again, that would be God's goodness in your life. I'm deeply aware of the pain that many of you have experienced in relationships. I know firsthand the horrific damage that your parents' divorce can bring on your life. I understand watching your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your friends, the movies, TV shows doesn't give you much hope that the covenant of marriage is something you should want in your life and for your future. I also understand that the lure and pull of money, having a job and career, enjoying your life, seeing the world, etc., make the covenant of marriage seem distracting, archaic, and even boring. It is my sincere hope that this seminar will provide some healing perspective about marriage and give you a God-sized vision for what marriage is and can be. By way of personal testimony, I've been married 24 years to my wife, Danielle, who you will meet at the end of this seminar. We have four almost fully grown children. Our oldest daughter, Sarah, got married this summer. We've had a full and happy life together. We both come from divorced homes. We both have experienced deep pain in relationships. We have friends and family that experience some of the most worst damage that humans can do to one another. In all of this, Danielle and I are deeply committed to each other and to the covenant of marriage being a foundational component of God's creation on earth. One last introductory comment. As I mentioned, we have four children. One of them just got married and we are walking with the other three through this dating adventure. We have also been working with college students for 25 years, and I've done over 40 weddings because I've worked with these young men and women. To, to many degrees and on many levels, we really do understand the dynamics of dating and what it takes to have a healthy and lasting marriage. I'm asking you to listen to the things I bring up as an offering of hope and happiness for your future marriage. Some of the things I mentioned in this seminar might be really challenging and even deeply convicting because you see, quote, mistakes you may have made or hurt you have caused or experienced. My prayer is that you would experience grace, healing, forgiveness, and hope in this seminar. Here's how I'm going to structure this seminar. First, I want to lay out a vision of marriage that God gives us in the Bible. The reason I'm starting there is because for most of you, this is where your dating will end up. If we start with God's ideal plan for marriage and understand its beauty and power, then we can back away, so to speak, from there and talk about dating in a way that prepares you to have a healthy marriage. So that's what we'll do first. Secondly, we'll take a few minutes to look at ways in which people play at marriage in their dating and how that can be dangerous. This happens in our dating culture, our hookup culture, and today's modern relationship culture. This will be important to recognize potential danger zones that you might be entering that could cause pain and future harm. Lastly, we will look at some practical ways to prepare to be married. This is where I 
I will help you with a positive way forward in building relationships with a pot- with potential marriage partner in mind. So, let's dive in. First, let's look at a biblically robust vision for marriage. And there's a lot of passages we could go to in the Bible, but I just chose the one that's found in Genesis chapter 2 at the very beginning as God creates the world. So let me read the passage. You'll have it there on your screen and you can follow along. Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord made uh, Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the, every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, let's pull out several paradigms or guiding principles, if you will, or just principles about marriage. First, in this passage, we see that a husband and a wife complete each other. Notice that the man was alone, and God said this was not good. And in fact, he brought all the animals before Adam, and he named them all. But he repeats again, no helper was found suitable for Adam. Men, you need women. A spouse is meant to complete you. Notice that God's solution was to make a helper suitable for the man. We've got to be very careful with this word helper. It's not something archaic or chauvinistic that we should throw away. In the Old Testament, the word helper is used over 30 times. Over half of those usages are for God himself. So God is a helper. This is the vision. Not someone who is weak or inferior, helping the stronger, more capable. Not at all. God helps us. So God's not weak and inferior. The wife was created to help because the man was incomplete and insufficient alone. Man needed help. Notice that the woman is taken from the side of Adam. Not his head, not his feet, but right near his heart. She was his equal. He called her woman, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Women, you need men, but you are near to his heart. This teaching of the Bible helps us to see that a healthy marriage is one that is rooted in a mutual love and understanding for each other. There is no competing, no jealousy, no undermining, no cheating, no abusing, nothing but making the other one better. This completion happens in a covenant relationship where there's vows and commitment for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health till death do us part. What happens in many dating relationships is that people get close to this sort of completing and then when it gets hard, they break up. Our culture is full of many 
M-I-N-I, divorces. Many of you have experienced this. Nevertheless, the first principle and paradigm we see is that of completion. Second, and it's close to this, is there is sameness and submission. First, they were both created in the image of God. God's fullest expression of himself is seen in male and female. So there is sameness to them. They both reflect the glory of God. However, there is an expected submission that will take place. Notice that man was created first, meaning his direct and constant submission is to God. Then notice that the woman is made from man. She is submissive to him and even in the way she came into existence. In fact, when Adam and Eve sinned in chapter 3, which is called the fall, God came looking for Adam to give an account because what was, he was supposed to do was protect Eve from all harm. Adam was meant to sacrifice himself so that he could protect his wife. He failed and they failed. But please make note that every other man who comes into the existence of the world will come through a woman. Even the Savior of the world will be birthed through a woman. In fact, Genesis 3 ends by saying Eve was the mother of all living. What this teaches us is that there is a gloriousness to the way they were created and to how they should relate. Later in the Bible, marriage will be described like this. The husband is the head over the woman, just as Christ is the head over the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so should the wife submit to her own husband. This submission is under the loving, protecting heart of a sacrificial husband, not a lording over. This will be the desire of your heart. A husband's desire to sacrifice, a wife's desire to submit will flow from your relationship with Christ. It will not be reluctant. It will be hard, but it will be a desire of your heart. Sameness and submission never cancel each other out. It is glorious that God made male and female in, this, in his image. It is glorious the order, structure, and framework through which he created them. So we've seen completion. We've seen sameness and submission. Thirdly, the multiplication of families. Notice what that passage says, that therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. It's assuming that Adam and Eve in the future would come from other Adam and Eves. Implicitly and explicitly, marriage is about furthering the human race and more explicitly, God's people. In the most obvious form of this, there is a man and a woman should physically multiply. But as the scriptures unfold, this multiplication is not limited to a physical reproduction because some are unable to do that. But it is expanded out into the family of God, which is the spiritual family expansion. What this means is that a husband and a wife are to complete each other, relate to each other in a sacrificial, submissive way so that the glory of God might be multiplied through them to generations to come. To be clear, God made men and women with their unique and specific anatomy, genetics, DNA, to make sure that they were equipped to carry out this amazing task. But sex between a man and a woman is not merely for the purpose of reproducing the human race. Sex is fun and should, be, and should bring about freedom emotionally, spiritually, physically. And we're going to talk about that next. But to, to summarize this point, 
marriage is set up by God as a means for multiplying his glory to the world. It is not only is not his only means, but is a powerful instrument in his hands. In fact, when God wanted to speak about his relationship with his people, he often refers to his relationship with his people with marital language. So not only do we have completion and sameness and submission and the multiplication of families, marriage is supposed to be a shameless relationship. The Bible says in that Genesis 2 that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. We are absolutely meant to see that in the purest sense, marriage ought to be a setup that the man and the woman can be completely and utterly free, just like being naked. Their bodies and souls should be free to be laid bare. They should be able to have sex without shame. They should be able to to be themselves without shame. They should be able to live life together without shame. In this, we are to see that sex is a weapon against shame. Sadly, for many of us, sex has actually produced unspeakable shame. We don't like our bodies. We don't like who we've become. We've resigned ourselves to a hookup culture which cheapens and minimizes the purposes of sex. It is not just about, quote, getting off. It is about having such an intimate and glorious connection with your mate that there is no shame. Please understand what I'm saying. God made you and your body glorious. He totally intends for you to give away your body to another in marriage. Your body was meant to be loved, explored, and marveled at by another. If you attempt to do this with multiple people, at multiple times and in multiple ways, then each time a portion of your glorious body is being given away to or being taken by someone who is not supposed to have that privilege. You are too glorious. Keep your glorious body for the one that God has made for you to share it with without shame. Let me pause here and address the issue of shame as it pertains to our sexual relationships. I know for a fact that each of you is carrying around a ton of shame as it pertains to your body and particularly to your sexuality. I know this first because we live in a fallen and broken world and shame is a part of our world now. I also know this firsthand because I myself experienced the shame of giving a a portion of myself to someone who wasn't my wife. I also know this because of the horrific damage that pornography has caused in our world. The pornography industry is a $3 trillion industry capitalizing on the perverse nature of our bodies and inducing all sorts of shame. Do we have hope? Can we be healed from these perversions? Yes, emphatically. Listen to this passage from Joel chapter 2. It'll be on your screen. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. What this passage is saying is that even though the locust have eaten a lot. God sent the locust as a judgment on his people for their sin. It was destructive. Sin and perversion have eaten a lot in our lives. God can and will, and will restore the years the locust have eaten. Make no mistake, there is damage, there is destruction, 
that is not beyond the redemption of God. In the margin of my Bible, at this passage, I have written, quote, D-dub in Christ. D-W is what I call Danielle, my wife. God has given me her and has more specifically and importantly given me Christ to restore, renew, and redeem me for what sin destroyed. This is your greatest hope in marriage, being in Christ. Friends, ask God right now to give you a spouse that will restore, renew, and redeem the shame that sin has caused. But more importantly, every day of your life, pray that Christ will be front and center in your life and heart because he alone can fully redeem and restore you. Right now, in a moment of maybe awkward silence, I would like for you to take a minute and ask God for this help in this, for his help in this. Pray for a mate. Pray for God's redeeming and renewing grace. Pray that your shame would be healed. Pray that you would have a marriage that brings glory to God and good to the world. Take just a minute and pray that simple prayer to God. Amen. Okay, let's move now briefly to some ways that I've seen people play at marriage in the way they date. We've talked about some of these ways already, but let's get real specific in a couple of areas. Since we were kind of on the sexual intimacy, let's stay there. We've touched on this, but let me say again that playing at the marriage privilege of a sexual relationship is very costly and dangerous. <clears throat> For some reason, people think that in dating, there is some kind of right that they have to move the relationship forward in a physical nature. There's good reason for this, actually. You were never meant to stop with merely a kiss. God made our bodies to be sexual creatures. He made our hormones so that when we were aroused, we are supposed to find complete fulfillment in those hormones. So that leaves us with a couple of options. First, you can let yourself go anytime those hormones are kicking in, meaning you can give yourself sexually to everyone and everything that gets you aroused whether that's a physical person or an image on a screen. However, you know how this works. If you let yourself go like this, then that means to every guy you date or girl you go out with or person you hook up with, a literal portion of your hormonal self is being given to that person. Imagine now trying to be fully there for your mate after years of giving yourself to others. I know this isn't fully connection, but my son, it was told by his coaches all through the summer, don't go to the pool before the big game. Now, why would they say that? Because my son, even though he's, a, you know, a middle was a middle schooler at that point, had a, it seemed like he had endless adrenaline and energy. But coaches knew you can only give of your internal adrenaline and hormones and focus so much. So they would say, "Don't swim before the big game. I need you fully ready for the game." In a similar way, God made our bodies that it keeps the score. And the more we give of ourselves to things that are damaging and harmful, the less we're ready in those moments. We really need those things. So guard yourself 
there. But that is an option to let yourself fully go. The second option is you can try to toe the line. You can kind of say, well, what's the line? How close can I get to sexual immorality and sexual perversion and not actually cross it? This means getting the hormones going with a kiss, a touch, a look, and then short-circuiting your system or your partner's system by stopping. This, again, is partially giving yourself to someone who is not going to, to be there for better or for worse. It creates a growing frustration. That's why it's called sexual frustration that will not be sustainable. The third option is you can choose to protect yourself and to protect others by not allowing yourself to get to that point. This will be hard. This will take creativity. This will take accountability. This will take a community. It's especially hard in relationships that are progressing towards marriage, and I'll address that later. For now, the one thing I see people play with in marriage is, is the sexual relationship. Be careful about playing around with your sexuality. Number two, relational completion expectations. Because God put a longing in us to be completed by another, which actually culminates in the sexual relationship, we play at this in our dating relationships, not just in sex, but in other ways. I have seen this most explicitly over the last few years in the texting and in the messaging component of how people are relating today. Think about some of the texts or messages uh, you have received or you have seen others receive and how manipulative and controlling they can seem to be. Even the time frame expectation of a response is oftentimes an indicator of how I'm expecting you to do something for me. Why didn't you respond? What does that respond mean? Only one smiley face? I love you, I miss you, my baby. All these different things are meant to try to grasp for control. We do this because we're insecure. Our relationships are insecure. We are taught through our parents' divorce, through the hookup culture, through the complexity of relationships today that people are quick to leave once they don't like something or find something better. In order to protect this insecurity, we use every avenue available, which now is right at our fingertips, to hedge out getting hurt. This can probably be best seen in how you text or message uh, in your relationships. My encouragement to you is to guard against anything that grasps at trying to control, manipulate, solidify, hedge in the nature of your relationship before there's a covenant made. I'll give some practical help below in a minute that can help you in this area. So be careful with your sexual exploration. Be careful of asking for relational completion the last way I see people play at marriage and dating is exclusive commitment too early. This one can be seen uh, to flow from the first two, but people play at marriage by asking for a commitment from a dating partner too early and too extensively. There are a lot of dangers to this. Your relationship can become an island. People start saying things like, they act like they're married. Before you started dating so-and-so, we used to blank. Or man, we used to see... Jack, before they started dating Jill. In order to preserve this com uh, commitment, you end up giving material possessions, you end up giving sexual favors, you end up giving relational time at levels that are only meant for a marriage commitment. Your family, your friends, your work, your hobbies, etc., end up becoming so closely aligned to this person that it feels like a marriage. What happens then if you break up? It feels in reality like a divorce. In fact, it actually kind of is. And could this be a good glimpse into why our culture is so prone to divorce? We've actually practiced it in our dating. We ask for a commitment too early. Think about the language we use. He cheated on me. She flirts too much. 
what's tied up in this is the insecurity of our relationships that we try to hem in by making it exclusive outside of marriage. And we can't handle that. I'll give some practical ways to, to combat this in a minute. But in this, just understand, try not to play at the covenant of marriage by asking for an exclusive commitment too early. In all of these, there is an obvious question then, what's the right way then to approach dating? So let's, let's look at that. Before I give some practical steps, let me give a framework. A group of godly thinkers years ago had a grid they used to help people determine God's will. At a foundational level, this grid that I'm going to give you is a great way to think about this issue of dating, but it could also be good for thinking about your future vocation, future decision-making, etc. These thinkers spoke in terms of calling. There are three levels of calling that they unpack. The, the highest calling is actually called the highest calling, is God. God is your highest call. No matter what happens in your life with your health, with your work, with your spouse, with your family, with your money, your God will always be near you. He will always love and care for you. He will always do what is best for you and for his glory. Pursue this calling above all else. That's why it's called the highest calling. God will never fail. Pursue God. That's your highest calling. Second is what they call a common calling. These are the things that are true for all Christians at all times in every culture. Things like prayer, do not murder, do not commit adultery, and others. In summary, those could be sometimes faith and holiness would be the common calling. Trust God and live a life worthy of the gospel. This doesn't matter where you live or who you marry or, or what job you have because there's common things to all of us. So there's highest calling, a common calling, and then they talked about a specific calling. And for our discussion now, uh, we're talking about the specific calling of a relationship. This would be to a particular person, and therefore his or her family, his or her extended life, his or her relational situation, and on and on. Until God clearly calls you to a person, then going after the highest and the common calling will set you up for the ideal specific calling. In fact, Proverbs 18.22 says this, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor with the Lord. The Hebrew word for find here is a weird tense. I won't go into it all, but it signifies an action, finding, but more like stumbles upon. The man uh, is on a walk, so to speak, down a path with God, and is most certainly trying to find a mate, but in a sense, the mate finds him. This is strikingly different than the words finding a mate that the world offers us. In the world's plans, you have to put your best foot forward at all times, buy the best gifts, be the most charming, always look and be the best, have good sex, make sure you're compatible, have a lot of Snapchat followers, on and on. This is not what the Bible means here. So let's look at what it would mean for you to find a mate or to be found as a mate suitable for someone else. First thing, become the right person. When you think about the type person you want to marry, someone who is honest, faithful, hardworking, full of faith, emotionally and sexually pure and mature, gentle, adventurous, beautiful. Are you becoming those things? Who God is forming and shaping you is much more important than you playing the field or finding your soulmate or whatever. God cares more about your future mate than you do. So be patient. Wait on him. Pursue him in all ways. 
This makes the highest calling our greatest aim. Become the person God wants you to be. And as you walk his path, you will stumble upon the mate he has for you. Become the right person. Secondly, build and live life in community. I like the phrase that no man is an island. We, we as an individual person live life in community. You should be involved in a campus ministry or social groups on campus. You should get plugged into a church. You should build community with other like-minded people around you. And this will dramatically increase the options for mates as you build community. Living life in community helps you with the first thing we talked about, which is becoming the right person. God will help you become that person in community. But I also like the idea that no couple is an island. So if you're in a relationship, don't date as an island. Date in the context of community. Let other people see and smell your relationship. Do they seem say it's healthy? Does it seem healthy? Does it smell healthy? Look healthy? Give others the freedom to speak into your relationship and listen to them. Dating in community with people invested in you and your future spouse will help you with this area tremendously. So become the right person. Build and live life in community. And then thirdly, protect freedom and holiness at all levels. We mentioned this several times, but protect freedom and holiness sexually. Seriously, don't underplay this one because today's world has normalized sexual exploration and activity. Your sexual body was meant for something whole and free, not something splintered and severed. Emotionally, guard against manipulating the relationship in order to keep it. Speak openly and honestly. Don't be guarded or defensive. Resist letting your insecurities and fears drive things you might say or do within a relationship. Especially watch your texting and messaging component of your relationship. And then protect freedom and holiness in relationships and relational purity. Guard against jealousy and isolation. As we mentioned above, date in a community. It is good for there to be friends and family involved in relationships. Listen to them. Okay, so there are some overarching things I wanted to communicate to you to help you have a healthy marriage and therefore a healthy dating experience. In closing, I wanted you to hear the words of my wife of 24 years. Uh, just a few days ago, we celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary. And so I asked Danielle if she would come and share a few of her thoughts uh, that time. So Danielle, come on here, and then I'll, I'll close our time. Hey, I'm Danielle Witherington. Um, so I just wrote a few things here that I'll share. Um, so during this season, I overhear many people as they discuss their favorite holiday. Some say Thanksgiving is their favorite holiday because it's time to celebrate the Lord and all the blessings and it's not as commercialized as Christmas. Others say they enjoy Christmas and celebrating the birth of Christ and all the parties and the decorations. And both is a time to be with friends and family I've thought about these conversations over the year and usually don't really give my input because my favorite holiday is my anniversary. Um, it's an odd one to admit I've never heard anyone share that their anniversary was their favorite holiday. I think it's my favorite holiday because it's so significant to me and my story. I do love Thanksgiving and all the family gatherings. And I do love Christmas and the festivities, but our anniversary speaks the loudest of Christ's redemption to me. I met Will the summer after my freshman year of college, and he was a junior. Um, we dated a couple of years and then married. Um, 
we didn't get it right or perfect. And as a matter of fact, Minnie told us to wait a little longer to get married. I was still in school when we got married. Um, we both come from divorced homes and the odds were stacked against us. I had a hard time trusting men, but the Lord gave me a husband who pursued me over and over. He has had to climb mountains and walls that I have protected myself behind for years. Year after year, another brick in my wall would fall and I would learn to trust the Lord and will more and more. So our anniversary is a great picture of the Lord's faithfulness to us and his redeeming love in our marriage. There's no reason that we are not another statistic of divorce or that we just have a marriage that coexists, except for God's grace in our lives. And I really do believe that. And as a matter of fact, I love Will more today than the day that I married him. Awesome. Thanks, honey. So um, I hope that gives you some good thoughts, even a, a vision of how God can use marriage to restore and redeem. Um, thanks for your time. At the, um, at the, at the, in the description area at the bottom of this page, there's going to be a link. I would be happy to engage with you over your questions and thoughts through email. And so if you just click on that link, there'll be a form where you can fill out and send me your question. And as I'm able, I will get to those questions and try to respond as I'm, as I'm able, or I'll connect you to someone who I might think is, is better suited for that. Uh, so feel free to send me your questions and thoughts at the link that's included with this video. Thanks so much. Have a great uh, uh, start to the 2021 20, year. Hope it's much better. Um, and I pray for God's best with you in this area of relationships. Thanks so much.